Hello, Alex Zane here. Thank you for choosing to listen to Just The Facts. And while you can still enjoy these episodes forever, you might want to check out our brand new show, A Trip To The Movies, where each week a different famous film fan curates their perfect night out at the cinema, picking what snacks they'd eat, where they'd sit, who they'd go with, and of course, what movies they'd screen. If you love cinema as much as we do, search A Trip to the Movies with Alex Zane or head to our socials at Trip to Movies Pod. That's at Trip to Movies Pod to find out more. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hello, I'm Alex Zane, and welcome to episode 29 of Just the Facts, the podcast that features a conversation about the career and achievements of a different actor or filmmaker every week. So, my guest today, he's making his second appearance on the show because he has had what is best described as a busy year. So, this interview was recorded the very day Ghostbusters Afterlife, the film he co-wrote with Jason Reitman, hit cinemas and a week after this interview was recorded his wonderful new festive movie a boy called christmas arrived on the big screen in the uk as well as on streaming platforms around the globe he is the absolutely lovely gil keenan who when he guested on episode three right back at the start episode three we got into his oscar nominated film monster house talked about him being hand-picked by Robert Zemeckis to make that movie straight out of film school. So, this time, we talk a lot about Ghostbusters and, indeed, Christmas cinema in general, especially adapting A Boy Called Christmas for the big screen from Matt Haig's best-selling book. He's on the way in about 15 seconds' time. Very quickly, don't forget, you can find us on all social media at JTFPod. And if you want to watch the video of today's interview, you can find it on our YouTube channel. JTFPod is our YouTube channel. It will be up there the Friday after this podcast is released. But right now, let's get into episode 29. Please welcome to Just The Facts once again, the brilliant Gil Keenan. 
Lovely stuff, Gil. How are you? Doing great. Really good to see you. I feel like I, I bump into you once a week at this point. <laughs> I know, right? It feels like, what, only uh, only a week ago that we were introducing a Ghostbusters afterlife screening together because it was. <laughs> How time flies. How time when, flies. When, when, when literal days separate us, yes. <laughs> um, I'm, I'm going to get this out of the way up top because uh, I know we discussed not spending uh, a great deal of this podcast talking about canines. How are the dogs? I'm glad that you're asking. Um, both of them, I'm happy to say, after having just checked, are curled up on my feet. So oh. uh, it's it, we're already off to a really good start. Um, oh. We've had our first Heath walk of the day. Looking forward to a second one after our conversation. Uh, how about on your end? Yeah, no, I, I love it. I have a busy day today. So I actually had to, and I hate doing this. I asked the dog walkers to come and take him out. Because I hate doing that because I don't know how you feel about it, but you get a dog and you're like, great, I'm going to walk the dog a lot. And then you just end up going, sorry, can you come around and walk my dog for me? Um, but they've canceled because uh, they lost their keys. So if he starts going mad halfway through this interview, apologies, he hasn't had a walk yet. And just like that, it's become once more a dog <laughs> podcast. Uh, we we right. really we came in with the best intentions. <laughs> let's 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 park the dogs uh, metaphorically and literally. And instead, I just want to before we get into a uh, boy called Christmas. Um, it just seems appropriate that we do sort of wrap up the Ghostbusters chat that we began last time when it was all very secretive. We couldn't really talk about much. Um, I did see you at the multimedia screening, and I'm pretty sure you stayed to watch it at the IMAX cinema in Leicester Square with a packed house. How was it? Not just seeing it on a screen that big, but seeing it with a packed audience. Um, it was a, a huge rush. It was our first time ever seeing the film play in IMAX. So it was a fresh print. Jason and I had seen the film obviously playing on a big screen before, but never on a screen that big that put you so deep into the action. Um, both of us came away really excited by what it did for the film, especially the third act and some key sequences in the middle of the film that just were designed and born to play on the largest screen possible. It was super cool. The crowd was great. Um, and I've now had this really interesting experience of having toured with the film since I saw you like a week ago mm. um, in five other cities uh, in Europe and seeing it play uh, across different, well, mildly different cultures, uh, but in very different locations. It, it really is so interesting how an audience activates a film and vice versa. And you never mm. get, you never get tired of it because even though a film is a finished, uh, a finished product, Right. It's uh, it's uh, at this point digital media that is fed through a projector onto a screen. It definitely comes alive in a theatrical way because of the quotient of, a, of an audience. And it's the thing that we've really missed these last few years. You know, we, we all of us have been consuming so many stories uh, during the, the various lockdowns. But the communal act of seeing something with a group of people is so important to, to the experience that we all associate with, you know, what, what a movie is. Anyway, so it was awesome. It was amazing. And I'm so proud of the film. I'm, I, I think we're speaking right now as the film is opening in cinemas around the world. So it's a pretty exciting moment. 
It really is. I was going to say, like, literally, as we sit here talking, today is the day that Ghostbusters Afterlife opens. Are you tempted? Because I know Jason has, mm. uh, has talked about how this is a movie that's been made for the fans. Are you at all tempted to jump on social media and just see the reactions as they come in? Uh, you know, almost everyone I know who is on the side of making things likes to pretend like they don't read uh, <laughs> Twitter and Instagram. But in the exact same way that everyone says that, almost every person I know who makes film or television or writes books is obsessively <laughs> searching every variation of every hashtag uh, when they put something out into the world because you know we would all be lying if we didn't say that we were making things for the consumption, right? We're, we're making things to create a connection with an audience. So, I mean, if, if my past experience is any guide, um, I will search sort of in vain for some positive reactions for a couple of days, and then I'll sort of move on to the next thing. But uh, the, the small handful of people who, who passionately hate whatever I've created will continue to seek me out and make sure that I know what their opinion is for years to come. Um, so, so that is the pattern that I'm expecting going into any new release. So, really, do you think? I mean, I thought that that strikes me as surprising. No, 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 not not really. I I, <laughs> I think that uh, I, I think that really what what will happen is that we made this film for Ghostbusters fans. They have been extremely vocal with their support so far, and uh, both Jason and myself have been really blessed with like extremely uh, kind and generous fan interactions and that's been across ages across genders all over the world it's amazing how when you turn up to show this film you almost always have folks in flight suits who have brought their packs to charge in front of the screen like crystals in the moonlight um <laughs> it's just it, you know I, I i've now seen it i've seen it in paris i've seen it in amsterdam uh seen it in rome uh, of course, London, Los Angeles, New York, and uh, I expect all around the world. Yeah. Yeah. I, I was my first experience of it when we were introducing it at uh, the IMAX and just the, all the proton packs lined up at the front there. I mean, some serious kit as well. I thought, sure, they're going to be made out of cardboard. No, maybe wood. Real like metallurgy has gone into those proton packs. It's a it's a it's an intense culture and it is a culture. And, uh, you know, one of the things that I became struck with when we first started the process of crafting the story that became the film is um, we were working at the Ghost Core offices on the Sony lot. And there is a, a huge frame display in the conference room there, because of course it's also Ivan Reitman's office. And this is uh, this, this franchise is, is his baby. Um, and there, there's this massive framed wall hanging that has local Ghostbuster chapter patches from all over the world. And it is a remarkable assortment of passion and, um, and fandom that goes right around, uh, right around the globe. So, you know, you've got Indonesia, you've got Japan, you've got um, uh, Egypt, Israel, uh, you've got dozens of African countries represented, Russia, straight across through to, of course, all of Europe and, and the UK. Um, uh, it's, it's daunting and it's also like exhilarating to see all that stuff. And 
now you've made the film, written the film, been involved in the process of shooting the film, promoted the film around the world. It's now out to date. Do you feel like you're closing the door on a, a specific chapter in your filmmaking career? Well, there's a process that happens when you start showing a film to audiences, like what happened at Leicester Square last week uh, when when we were uh, presenting the film together to, to the audiences. Really, once you start to have those sort of public screenings, a transition happens where the film goes from being something that is yours to something that belongs to the fans or to the audiences, to the mm -hmm. world, regardless of what their reaction is, actually. And uh, that's a natural and necessary process because you're sort of separating this thing that you've been holding. Uh, you know, it, it, uh, it's it's a the 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 period of incubation is coming to an end, and so it definitely feels, in a healthy way, like this is now something that has come out of us and gone into the world. Um, whether it's the end of a chapter in my filmmaking story, that's a little bit harder to answer because Jason and I continue to write together. Um, and uh, if this thing does well, then we'll uh, hopefully be continuing to write more stories in the Ghostbusting universe. And so we are in very uh, you know, active, detailed conversations about where those stories could go. Hey, well, um, I really hope it does well. As I think I told you on the night, I I cried, uh, big big manly tears, but tears <laughs> nonetheless. Um, yeah, it was. Uh, you know, I was overcome. Um, I was. I, I I think I walked into it with the, the expectation that look, this was a very important film for me in my childhood, as we talked about last time. It's a, it was a big deal, Ghostbusters. It's like mm. the first film I remember distinctly like having a passionate response to having a Ghostbusters baseball hat with the symbol on the front. It was a big deal. And then I expected to be hit by nostalgia, but I don't think I expected it as much. Like it, it was quite a powerful reaction I had. And from what I've read and from speaking to friends who love the movie as much as me, I am not alone in that. It's, um, it's really cool because it was, uh, the feeling that you're describing is the feeling that we had in conceiving this, which is how to channel the same passion and uh, emotion that we associate uh, this moment in our development as people, as movie fans, as Ghostbusters. For me, it's like you, a, a relationship of seeing something on a big screen that felt really cool and scary and funny and meaningful. Um, for Jason, of course, it's a much more complex relationship. Uh, he was uh, the son of the lead Ghostbuster, Ivan Reitman. And so um, it's all of those same uh, feelings uh, are all tinged with much heavier, deeper, uh, familial strains. And I think that's really part of the key of what makes the film tick, is that it, as much as it's a story about the Spanglers discovering their connection and confronting their legacy, it's a story about a director confronting his own legacy vis-a-vis -vis his, his relationship with his father. 
Indeed, yeah. Weirdly, and just completely strangely, uh, as a coincidence, obviously we're going to talk a movie that's uh, coming out on Sky Cinema. And uh, for Sky today, I'm doing a little meet and greet with your co-writer and director of Ghostbusters Afterlife, Jason Reitman. So in about three hours, I'm going to be looking at him on this very same computer. That is hilarious. I was just <laughs> talking to him last night about what he's got going on today. And um, he's like, Oh yeah, I think I'm doing some uh, some video stuff. Uh, yeah, I don't think he actually had checked through what the itinerary <laughs> was. That's really funny because uh, we we both had such a great time chatting with you at the oh, thanks, uh, at the at the London screening. So that's really funny. What a small world. It really is. It really is. Okay. Final or or, or Alex Zane is taking over the world, and <laughs> uh, it's a one stop shop for promoting anything in the in the in the in the world. Literally, uh, apart from the fact that it makes it sound a little bit like I was kicked a brown bag under a table in a restaurant. I don't mind that sentiment. So thank you very much. Um, <laughs> so a uh, final Ghostbusters question before we start talking Christmas and I wrap some tinsel around my head. Um, favorite moment or line from Ghostbusters Afterlife that really you love the most? And hopefully it's spoiler free because I'm still being really careful about spoilers. Okay. Um, favorite moment. I'm just going to say random things that I've been noticing in the, in the screening the last, the last couple of times. And this is an evolving thing because when you watch a movie 20 times, mm. you start picking up actually random things while you're watching it. Mm. Um, I love the moment when uh, Gary Gruberson hits play on his TV VCR machine in the classroom not just for what is on the screen, which I don't want to spoil for the audience, but because the particular cut of what is on the screen is so insane and ridiculous um, that I can't stop laughing when I see a particular shot. Um, I'm just going to say it. He, he, he hits play uh, on, a, on a film that he found in the teacher's lounge. It happens to be Cujo uh, <laughs> yeah. for his summer school class. And there is one moment in that sequence that plays on the screen where Cujo is going after a little bunny in a, in a field. And it, it, I think it's like one of the funniest juxtaposition of moments because of the way that that, like it's such an over the top beat on the screen. And then you cut to the class and they're so nonplussed. Um, and I, I, I just love that interplay. So, and I also love what it does for the film because it's, it's the, it's the movie getting into the next gear in terms of its tone, a comedy. Um, uh, so yeah. that's, that's, a, that, that's, a, that's a particular favorite moment. Um, it's a great moment. I think that sequence in Cujo was shot by Yander Bond, wasn't it, as well? It's quite a cool sequence. It's really cool. It's got beautiful storytelling. I mean, it's, it's intense. But mm. I actually didn't know that Yander Bond shot it. That's so yeah. cool. Yeah. Um, that's rad. Um, uh, I'm going to name a couple of other things just while we're uh, while we've got the, 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 the mic open about it. Um, mm. I've become a real fan of Finn Wolfhard's physical uh, performance and uh, it's very subtle, but now having seen the film a bunch of times, he is able to channel mostly because he was going through it, the sort of puppy gangliness of teenagehood. And some of the ways that he moves across the screen in this film are, are so well observed. Uh, there's one particular moment where he's just moving through the yard looking for old beat up wrecks that he could get 
you know, turned on. And uh, he happens to get ensnared in a tree with some hanging bottles in it. And it's a totally ridiculous bit of business. Like you would never write that down, but he does it in such a casual way that I can't help but be uh, totally tickled by it. So I, I love it. Um, uh, favorite line? Well, that's a tricky thing to ask of a screenwriter because <laughs> <laughs> you're basically asking me to point the load. Analyze and compliment yourself. <laughs> and all of, all of my children hanging around me. Um, I, I do really love the moment where Phoebe and podcast cement their friendship as they're walking home from school. It's, it's, a, it's a scene rather than one line, but um, I love the moment where... Um, where uh, podcast, who's an outsider kid, just like we were outsider kids, um, uh, asks makes makes a brave decision to ask Phoebe if she'll be his lab partner, and she says, "I don't think we're going to be doing much labs, but uh, but sure." And I, I I think that the the bridge that's built between those two characters in that moment uh, feels so sturdy at, at that point. I just feel like I, I'm so invested in their in their uh, relationship. And it's a it's a it's a joy to watch every time. I think uh, it's uh, it's Logan who plays uh, podcast, isn't yeah, it? Uh, yeah, yeah. Th that young actor. I watched him. Um, obviously, he's great as, po as podcast. But I watched him on uh, the the stage, uh, the New York Comic Con. I you were there as well. Man, that kid is going to go far. He's got like this natural sort of comedy totally. timing and like very confident. But like he delivers like some gags on that uh, during that Q and A that you're like, whoa. He walked out onto the set the very first time with like all the confidence in the world that all of us struggle to attain through a lifetime in show business. And he just strolled in. He's like, all right, where's my key camera? What, what, what light am I playing to? What do we got here? What's the business? Um, and uh, just nailed every, every beat. He's a, he's a genius. And um uh, congratulations on Ghostbusters. Right, look, it's a busy time of year, uh, Christmas, uh, for anyone. Uh, particularly busy for you because even though we sit here today talking about Ghostbusters being released, in literally a week's time, you have another movie that you not only co-wrote but directed coming out seven days from now. Um, let's talk A Boy Called Christmas. Um, when you were on the pod back in June... Um, I think we were discussing that it was going to get a Netflix release and it still is released in some territories on Netflix, but here in the UK, it's getting a joint Sky Cinema and theatrical release. Yes. So um, the film is one of those, uh, one of those rare things where it is uh, a bunch of different releases in a bunch of different territories. Um, mm. And it's been a new experience for me to be able to travel around a little bit with it over the past few weeks. Obviously, Netflix is the behemoth that will release the film in most of the world. So I know your podcast is listened to internationally. Chances are, unless you're listening to this and you have a British accent, you're going to be seeing the film in uh, the film on Netflix. Um, but for instance, in Germany, it's getting a theatrical only release in Australia and New Zealand. It's getting a theatrical only release. Um, uh, and in France, it's getting a hybrid Canal Plus uh, release. Um, and then uh, in the United Kingdom, it's getting a hybrid sky and theatrical release. I think that's all of them. Um, <laughs> it's definitely, uh, 
you know, uh, for me, uh, the joy of this is knowing that here in England, uh, people who are looking to have this story play uh, in, in a way that was intended are going to get to go see it on uh, the biggest screen possible. Um, and those who can't get to the movie theater will get a really great experience at home. And by the way, like for a film that is meant to be enjoyed with your family, that's a pretty great way to go. I, I'm very spoiled right now that I have these two movies to discuss, one that can only be seen in movie theaters and one that has this added bonus of giving an option to see the thing in the place where you're most comfortable. Um, and uh, I, uh, I, I think that because nobody could have anticipated how the landscape of exhibition and distribution would have been looking in 2021 when we started this film, I really can't complain. I'm so proud of the film. It's um, and not that you were intending to uh, be diplomatic about the ways to watch this film, uh, although that was. I, I do think you're 100% right. I watched it at home um, last night uh, on my TV screen, and uh, it was great. It was lovely. It was. I watch a lot of Christmas movies at home uh, just because it offers a respite from the craziness that is being on the streets of London at Christmas. Um, but again, I think obviously, you know, it must be nice being able to offer people at this time of year, particularly having not had this opportunity last year, the idea of going to the cinema with their family to watch mm. this movie, which does contain a great deal of spectacle, which I'm sure will play well on the big screen. It, it, it really does. Um, I, you know, we, I went all over the world to make this film as we touched on a little bit in our last conversation. And I, uh, I shot the film in 70 millimeter for a reason. Uh, because I believed in its ability to uh, take the audience on a journey. And uh, the part of that journey uh, works best on the largest screen imaginable. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it does. And um, on a personal level, I don't know how often this happens for filmmakers. I couldn't, uh, I couldn't find a sort of, uh, as much as there is every statistic in the world on the internet, I couldn't find a statistic for how often a filmmaker has a film they've written and a film they've written and directed come out a week apart. Does it feel particularly uh, special? Like, how does it feel? Uh, Busy, I guess. <laughs> stressful, uh, frightening, terrifying. Um, by the way, in Germany, both are opening theatrically together uh, tonight uh, or tomorrow. So wow. that's one of the weirdest flukes in the universe is uh, that they actually, I've been getting pictures from uh cinema lobbies where they are posters side by side and it's very very strange um yeah i mean obviously i'm like very proud and it's an insane thing if you had told me like four years ago five years ago that i would have that i would have two movies that are opening within a few days of each other it would sound preposterous so i'm very happy i'm also daunted by the scale of the responsibility that I feel right now for a bunch of different people and studios and audiences. I want everybody to love the stories that I tell. And uh, so I am, I'm psyched, but I'm also pretty stressed out. 
I mean, Christmas movies in particular seem to hold a very special place in people's hearts. People get very attached to specific Christmas movies. Like, for example, mm. I, there hasn't been uh, one Christmas in probably about 10 years for me that I haven't put Scrooged on. Like, that is my go-to Christmas movie. I cannot not watch Scrooged at Christmas. And um, Do you have, like, is that something that exists in your world? Do you have a, a go-to Christmas movie that you have to watch once a year or at least try to? I love a Christmas story and it's not very well known in this country. I don't know why that is actually a Christmas story. was directed by Bob Clark, who also directed black Christmas, which is one of the great um, yeah. horror, horror themed Christmas films with some incredible point of view camera work. And um, uh, if you haven't seen a Christmas story, I, I, I think this is the year that you should add it into the rotation because it's a total masterclass in, in tonal, uh, Christmas comedy storytelling. Um, have you seen it? Oh, I was just about okay. to say, this is so, like a learning curve for me. I've not seen so, a Christmas story. I don't know what happened, why that film, what, somebody made a decision that that movie was too American or something. And it never really got, I've, I've been, I've been sort of beating the drum of it here um, for the past couple of weeks. And I've been struck by how many extremely film literate people just haven't heard of it. And it's a, it's it's a knockout. It's it's great. It's weird. It's funny. It gets right into all the. It sort of like dismantles all of the artifice of the idea of the holiday and goes right right into some truly bizarro set pieces. Um, I, I I highly recommend it. Um, also, it's a nostalgic watch because I watched it a lot growing up. So you know, as ever, it's probably tinged for me with uh, experience, who knows how it'll hold up for somebody who's, who's never seen it before. But um, uh, I love Scrooge. I love Scrooge so much and showed it to my daughter last year for the first time because it felt like the first year where certain elements in it could be fully appreciated. Yeah, the ghost of, uh, the ghost of Christmas future when he opens his cloak. So good. So <laughs> right. good. But not yeah. for not for not for a, no, no, a young, no. it young felt, child. It felt it felt felt like it was the right moment to uh, unleash unleash Scrooge. Um, but um, uh, I'll also add Nightmare Before Christmas to the list, and in, in a sort of non uh, non ironic way, it's just a movie that uh, did the concept of the holiday justice without reverting to cliches or tropes. Um, and um, and still found a way to have heart. Um, so I think I, I would say between those three, you're you've got you've got a pretty great Christmas uh, movie marathon. I'm going to stick a Christmas story on my list. That's in, that's interesting, especially that you know you watched it as a child and it's come with you into adulthood to a certain degree. Because I mean, my Christmas movie as a child, I did rewatch recently and does not hold up as well. And that was Which one? Santa, Santa Claus the movie. Right. Um, I mean, as a yeah. child, as a child, you know, I wasn't aware just how much money McDonald's and Coca-Cola might have spent on that production. But I just knew I wanted a McDonald's and a can of Coke immediately after watching it. That's funny. I have not seen that film since it came out. Um, I was I'm probably a little bit older than you. And I think when that film came out, I, I was already sort of not, I was supposed to feel like I was too cool for it. So I think I, I think I never, I never got on the Tim Allen train. Um, that just, uh, that train never stopped at my station. Oh, that's the Santa Claus, the Tim Allen train. Which yeah, one that's... were you talking about? 
I'm talking about the Dudley Moore. Uh, oh, film. we're talking uh, about different Santa Clauses. I'm. I mean, look, you can't blame me. Santa Claus sounds I, the same as Santa Claus. And I would never blame you. That's absolutely true. And I also do like the Santa Claus, so that's fine. But the Santa Claus, I think, still holds up. Whereas, um, that's a the Santa Claus is a weird one. Like talking about, we'll, we'll talk about um, uh, uh, working on a. Um, uh, a boy called Christmas, but I read the original script for a Santa Claus, this kid's sort of family favorite movie. In the original Santa Claus, Tim Allen's character in the script kills Santa Claus by shooting him dead because he thinks he's a burglar. You know, when so you read good. a script and you go, wow, that's different to what finally made it to the screen. Um, I just um, had the great experience of reading for the first time, uh, speaking of Christmas films, the, uh, the original draft of Gremlins. And um, uh, and it was a pre-production draft that's available online. You just have to search for it. Um, and it is incredible, A, how similar it is on the page to what ended up on the screen, except for a couple of key things. And those key things are human murder. So um, the uh, gremlins are successful. You know that? Uh, that iconic scene uh, where Billy's mom is going to battle with the gremlins in the kitchen. Mm, it it the features blender that, that the blender scene. Exactly. Yeah. So that scene ends a little bit differently in the script because they end up murdering Billy's mom. In that oh scene. my God. She dies. She does not survive the scene. She's dead. Holy um, shit. Also the Corey, um, Corey Feldman character, mm. you know, uh, Billy's best friend in the, in the film. Dead, dies. He loses his mom and his best friend um, in the process of uh, trying to save his town from the delightful little furry balls that turn into reptiles. How? I don't know how you get a happy ending with those two deaths in it. I really don't. I that's that puzzles. I, I don't know. That feels so far one way that to ever sort of go, oh, but at least things ended well for Billy. Well, they never do because he's lost two important. Wow. That's uh, well, you, you know, you're probably echoing the exact words of an executive at Warner Brothers circa 1983. Yeah. So um... that's you see, that's where I that's where that's where I belong. Not a creative <laughs> as an executive going. No. Nope. <laughs> so let's talk a boy called Christmas. So how did it begin for you, this journey? Because we're sitting here now. It's about to be released in the UK. Um, and indeed, it's been released today in, in Germany. And tell me where it began, where how you were approached uh, about this. Well, um, I had a submission of a book from a producer who I respected, but had never spoken to. His name is Graham Broadband. He's a, uh, he owns a company called Blueprint Pictures here in the UK. And they um, make films like Seven Psychopaths and uh, mm. Three Billboards. Um, the most recent Emma, directed by Autumn DeWilde. Um, uh, you know, fancy uh, top shelf sort of stuff. Um, and uh, and Graham sent me a book called uh, A Boy Called Christmas uh, and a draft of a screenplay that he had been developing uh, of the book by a writer named Al Parker. Um, he sent it to me in a sort of... Uh, in a move of pure producerial manipulation right before Christmas uh, a couple of years ago. And I decided that I wasn't going to let him get away with that. So I sort of put it to the side and waited till January to crack the covers 
and read read the book and then the script because I I wanted to see I, I guess I sort of said to myself that if if the thing worked in January when everyone's sick of Christmas um, and I still found a way into the story and cared about it then it would be something worth 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 discussing. That sounds smart. That sounds cute. People do get carried away with the Christmas spirit. I mean, I, I equate watching a Christmas movie to watching a movie on a plane with how easily I will cry because it's Christmas. It's like I'm, I'm, a, I'm in a very vulnerable state if it's a Christmas movie. It's similar to Ghostbusters fandom, really. I mean, it's basically just uh, touching, uh, you know, emotional, emotional touchstones from <laughs> our basically all uh, what we're doing is connecting a through line to where you are as a <laughs> grown ass man to where you were <laughs> as a young person who believed in the impossible. Right. And yep. uh, so uh, being aware of that, it just becomes chemistry really. But. Um, hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently. I asked Mint Mobile's legal team. If big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation, they said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous to your contracts, they said, what the f are you talking about? You insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. The, 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 the experience that I had with it was that I was instantly hooked by Matt Haig's tone because he writes in a voice that's actually pretty unusual to find in modern storytelling. It has the closest feeling to an authentic kind of roll doll approach to a story that I've found in mm. the modern storytelling vernacular. Mm. And, um, and what Matt wrote got to me. Like I, I, I had a weird relationship with Christmas personally um, as, a, as a kid is sort of this weird kind of hidden away part of myself. And it was reading the book and, um, and all's first adaptation of it that somehow kind of opened the cupboard to some 
feelings that I'd had put away for many years. And uh, I started to see the world almost immediately. I, I saw that there was a potential to make a, a totally new kind of Christmas film. And also that the, the ceiling was really high uh, in terms of what kind of film this could be, like the ambition of the film could could be could be much higher than most people would expect when they get the family together to watch a Christmas film play out. And that's interesting. I was going to say when you're reading that book, are you already talking internally in in visuals in like what what this is going to look like on the screen? Because I mean, just to talk about the opening um, of the film. While I have not seen Snow on the Ground at Christmas in London for as pretty much as long as I've lived here. Is this your first Christmas in London or were you here for the last How year? How dare you? That's false history. You <laughs> were here last year. You know perfectly well that we had three beautiful hours of, <laughs> of powdery snow that coated every turnstile and, uh, and created beautiful shimmery puddles of oil and grit. I, <laughs> I this is not me accusing you of making London look like Richard Curtis's fantastical London, like in, in Notting Hill, where you go, that is not a London I know, but I love it. I'm just saying it was it was beautiful. It made me long for a white Christmas. Our snow tends to come around March or April or with climate change, July. Who knows? But it certainly has never been on Christmas Day. Where did you shoot uh, that? Because it looks great. Oh, thanks. The London stuff. First of all, I, I will say that I am projecting, uh, I, I want this film to play for years to come. And I do expect with climate change that we will have six months of blistering snow uh, and, and then six months of 100 degree heat. Um, and it, it, it may just line up with Christmas one of those years. Um, uh, <laughs> where, did, where did I shoot? Um, the London locations, the exterior locations were uh, in Primrose Hill, where mm. We were lucky enough to be able to close down the entire neighborhood for a couple say. of days. Wow. And that was really fun. I had lived in that neighborhood when we were in pre-production before moving up here near the Heath. And um, it was really nice to have my revenge on all the snooty neighbors by uh, <laughs> snarling their traffic for a couple of days. Um, no, it's a, it's, a, it's a beautiful neighborhood. It's sort of uh, everyone. Uh, postcard concept of a pretty but urban uh, neighborhood because it's mm. unbearably charming. And importantly, it's sort of bite-sized. So on the screen, it looks really big, but it, it's finite. And, and importantly, it's not a through neighborhood for traffic because Primrose no. Hill is sort of an island uh, unto itself within the city of London. And that meant that we could close off the streets without creating massive snarling headaches in every direction. Um, just, just, for, just for me, because stuff like this fascinates me, what is the snow? that like, what, what is that made of? Uh, so it's made out of the white parts of seal eyeballs. So <laughs> what they do is they gather a bunch of... Um, so it's a bunch of different things. There actually is like, there are three different concepts. It's uh, there are paper snows, there are foam snows. Um, the stuff that we used in Primrose Hill uh, was all the uh, stuff that is not just recycled and biodegradable, but hooverable. So there was an entire team that came the night after filming 
Um, and this is, we had very narrow windows to film in for those sequences because we had to be done by a certain time uh, that both to switch off the massive film lights and also so that the crew of dozens of men and women with Hoovers could come in to suck it all back up into and to get recycled into more movie snow. Um, so that stuff is pretty crazy. Um, and we did actually weeks, if not months of testing, uh, camera testing of various snows um, and to come up with the combination. And in the Czech Republic where we filmed the bulk of the film, we uh, had engineered our own custom blend of snow just to be able to get the color temperature right and the consistency right. But you still have to do a lot of work over it. Like it looks great in wide shots. In a close up, um, I almost always had to do, uh, and, and, and granted, I would say the half the film, at least half the film is real snow because we, we properly shot in the wilderness mm. in the far north. Um, but for the half that uses fake snow, uh, if there's a close up, I almost always wanted to go in and add some layer of um, sort of specular detail to it to give it that shimmering quality that's almost impossible to do with, uh, with, with movies now. It looks great. It really does Thanks. look great. I mean, it really sets the scene because, I mean, it's a, it's a wonderful conceit, um, this. And I haven't read the book, so you'll be able to tell me whether this was something added for the movie or indeed it is in Matt Haig's book. This idea, um, a very similar to the, the Princess Bride, of uh, someone telling a story to young kids who are disinterested in that story uh, at the beginning, uh, like Peter Falk is uh, with Fred Savage in, there, in The Princess mm -hmm. Bride. And it's... Um, and then that story is the, the the plot of the movie, but it's it gives you that nice little cutback where you know you get to be self aware about the fantastical nature of a story and what that might mean to kids today. Yeah, it's it's a great device. It's not in Matt Haig's novel. Uh, right. It was an innovation of Ol Parker, who co-wrote the screenplay with me, and it's a brilliant one because it creates a you know a, a modern relatability to the story. It also uh, really cleverly highlights one of the story's themes. And, and this was a theme that was central to the book itself. Um, and, and that is the theme of storytelling as a transformative tool, that a story can change our lives, right? And um, so by highlighting that there is a story within a story within a story in A Boy Called Christmas, it allowed the audience to leave the theater thinking about how we tell each other tales and what those can open up in our own lives. Of course, I, we should mention actually, because you've watched this with an audience now, you had the, the, the premiere at uh, the Natural History Museum here in London. What a venue for a premiere. It was incredible. It was so cool to be in there. I used to go to that museum as a little kid with my grandparents and to be able to do the red carpet on the ice rink and, mm -hmm. uh, and watch the film under a friggin' blue whale skeleton in the <laughs> in in the in the in the grand hall of the place. It mm. was it was magic. Sky really pulled out all the stops. It was super cool. So the person narrating this story to uh, the kids, I mean, could you ask for a better narrator? We'll talk about the cast in general, but let's start with Dame Maggie Smith. Uh, I mean, wow, uh, an icon of cinema and 
she's fantastic. As a director, when you're working with someone like that, does it make it easier? Because you can, obviously, I mean, go. She knows what she's doing, does Maggie Smith. I, I can step back and focus on other elements or because you've got someone who, I mean, you know, like I said, is a national treasure. Are you kind of like, yikes, I, I better be on point here. Um, I think it's probably a mixture of the two. I mean, I definitely was aware that I had a god of film acting uh, in the film and that I obviously wanted her to feel that, that she could trust in the process, trust in me, and that I wouldn't be squandering her gifts on screen. Um, but also I knew very well that the greatest magic trick that this film pulls off is that Maggie Smith is telling us a story for two hours. You know, it's like an incredible gift for any filmmaker to have her be the soul that carries you through a story. I could listen to her for many, many more hours than this film plays out. She's just got, I even, I watched the film yesterday uh, and was so struck by how the uh, the tonality in her voice creates so much melody. Like uh, you, you really feel like you're being told a classic story when she's telling it. It's mm. amazing. Mm. Yeah, I mean, she's one of... I think I touched on this last time we spoke, but what a, what a cast you've got here. So you've got Dame Maggie Smith, Sally Hawkins, Toby Jones, Jim Broadbent. I mean, the who's who of British acting royalty. How do you go about assembling a cast like that? Is it as simple as sort of sending them the script and them going, we love this? Do you have a phone call? Do you have a meeting? Do they need convincing? How does it work? Um, it it works in a variety of ways. It's not easy, but it helps when you're working with a piece of material that people generally have a positive reaction to. I mean, Matt's writing touches people. There's no question about it. And so I think that the book did a lot of the heavy lifting in terms of getting people to understand what, what we're after. But um, I, um, I think for every actor, it's it becomes really important that that we create some sort of a bond, like that the a personal one. That the uh, idea of giving up a part of who they are, which is what an actor has to do every time they take on a new character, is not something that they take lightly. And so they want to feel like the person that they're collaborating with in that exchange is somebody that they can trust. Um, so. Um, with some actors like Toby Jones, we had made a film together already, City of Ember. Toby and course, I have stayed yeah. really close friends over the years. And so that one was really easy. I, I basically just asked very nicely. And Toby said yes. Um, <laughs> Sally Hawkins. That's it's as easy as that. Just you, you asked ask nicely. Very nicely. <laughs> I remember to say please. Um, <laughs> with, with Sally Hawkins, I... I'm a huge fan and I never, um, never had spoken to her. Um, and I had to send a lot of letters and uh, really uh, just uh, find a way to connect with her. Um, once we did, it was easy because we were, um, it turns out that we were both born within a couple of days of each other in the same, uh, in the same hospital and grew up in the same uh, part of London um, and Blackheath. Um, and uh, so 
we ended up having a lot of shared uh, shared interests and and connections and uh, became became close. Um, and she was so incredible to work with. Like I I, I just had this one moment on the film because we'd had a lot of conversations about the character and about the tone of the film, which obviously is like a heightened tone. It's a storybook tone, right? And so to modulate a performance, especially of a villain stepping into a film like this required a lot of faith on Sally's part. Um, and there was one day where I, uh, I booked one of our big sound stages for just the two of us to have a uh, rehearsal session and for us to really figure out sort of the character and so that I could answer questions. And uh, we sat down to start reading through the scene and I watched the character come to life on her face. I saw her features start to reorganize and a uh, and it was an incredible channeling. Like I just saw her breathe life to a character and you don't often get to be there when that moment happens. And it was a huge privilege for, uh, for me as a, as a fan of hers. Um, so yeah, that was it's cool. Quite, it's quite amazing. It's quite amazing because I mean, with, I, without giving too much away, she isn't a one note villain. Uh, let's say there's a, which I look, I'm not an actor, but I imagine if it's like, you're, you're this, and you could just do that. But when you're not entirely that and there's a complexity to you, that's a different thing for the, the in inverted commas, bad guy, bad person to be. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I'm, I'm, I know that that complexity was a, a big part of the challenge and the joy of the character for her and for me in putting the film together. That complexity was something that I wrote into the into the story. There's less of that in the book. And um and it was something that I sort of brought into the writing process, um, mostly because I, I knew how important it was to be able to have a motivation on the part of the villain that wouldn't just be about being an oppositional force to the story, but to have some of the same, I mean, villains are always better when they're like cut from the rib of your hero, right? If you can find a way to create a, a, a true thematic connection between your villain and your hero, then it, it's, it's good storytelling. Um, and uh, that was, yeah, that was something I was proud of. Okay. And uh, one more uh, person who absolutely has to be given a mention is as fans will, of the book will no doubt uh, be aware of, uh, there is a character by the name of Aunt Carlotta, who I met for the first time in the guise of Kristen Wiig, who yet again proves that she is one of the, greatest comic actors on the freaking planet she's so she's so damn good um <laughs> i was just i was just going through photos this morning because uh, in the next week or so i'm going to be putting out hundreds of um photos i think as instagram stories of uh just my process of making and designing and uh shooting the film and there's there's a photo of Kristen Wiig in her trailer um, having her wig applied for the first time. And you could just watch the moment. I mean, and it's, it's a one frame image, but you see in that the beginning of the transformation. She is very much is um, she's like a conjurer. Right. I mean, Kristen Wiig gives herself so fully to these pretty dramatic transformations. Uh, and she was doing it all throughout uh, Saturday Night Live where you would see her 
channeling something with so much bravery. She always threw all of herself into the performances. Um, and so as a fan of SNL and of what she did on that show, I was really confident that she could nail a storybook uh, villainous, uh, a true Dalian ant like Aunt Carlotta. <laughs> um, and uh, I, so I, I sent the script to her and the letter and it just so happened that she had been looking to do something British and weird and uh, and a little bit heightened. And so it was like a perfect uh, match. She, she was very enthusiastic. It was really fun to make. And we can't not mention the beating heart of the, the story because it's, a, it's about a young boy. The mouse. Um, <laughs> Mika. Oh, my God. Stephen Merchant is Mika. I mean... How much of that was improvised? How much was on your page? It was an old Parker script. Half and half, half and half. Yeah. I mean, uh, I wrote a lot of Mika in post while while shooting. So Mika was a was actually in the first drafts of the script. He basically only ever talked about cheese, <laughs> and that was funny. <laughs> but it felt like it was uh, it, it it was a. a you know, it was diminishing returns. Um, and it, it felt like there was an opportunity to have him, this this character who basically just learned how to talk a few seconds ago, uh, all of a sudden come in with the strongest opinions about everything that was going on. Um, the arrogance of this mouse is just uh, towering. Um, and so, uh, so uh, but the best, decision I made with Mika was casting Stephen Merchant, who's like one of the great comic writers of our generation. Mm -hmm. And so he, I gave him very, very wide berth in terms of writing for Mika. He had a very clear sense of Mika's voice, which was his own. <laughs> um, <laughs> but but that, that, that's, that's not entirely fair to Stephen because actually I think the reason Mika works as a character is because Stephen's actually a, a very gifted performer and yes. is able to find heart in, uh, in a performance that normally could be just a sort of, you know, a, a, a gag machine. And that's mm -hmm. certainly not the character that Stephen created. Um, but I, 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 I'm very, uh, yeah. I mean, I, I think um, I'm. I, I give myself a pat on the back for casting that part with not just somebody who can bring him to life, but can also write the hell out of him. Yeah, I mean, you're right. He Mika has his journey, and you know, like you say, it's not. He isn't just a gag machine. Although those gags that cut through sometimes, like, hey, look, a squirrel, a dead frozen squirrel, are just like, oh, you know. Thanks. I, I, I take I take full credit for the dead frozen squirrel. Anytime there is anything animal related in the film, you can basically just draw a straight line to straight line to me. Well, this must have been something of a learning curve for you. This is this the most CGI you've used in a movie? Well, you've got... other than Monster House, I guess. <laughs> That's a very good point. Let me rephrase that question. From all your live action, is this the man... least uh, CGI you've ever used? <laughs> From your uh, from your uh, from uh, this is your third live action movie, yeah. but you've got you've got a CGI bear, you've got Mika, uh, yeah. you've got the reindeer, you've got a troll. Um, uh, I, especially, look again. I don't I don't like pulling back the curtain because you know people want to see the magic of cinema. What is a uh, young Nicholas uh, played by uh, Harry Lawful? Um, what is he sitting on when he's riding the reindeer in real life? 
Oh, do you not uh, want to tell me? Will it ruin no, it? No, 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 no. I'll tell you because it's really cool, actually. Because it was a combination of four different, four different tools. Um, so I had a really clear sense of, uh, I think I mentioned this to you in our first conversation, but I started this process out in Lapland in the north of the Arctic Circle and uh, actually spent a couple of days at a reindeer farm with the reindeer farmers, learning about the creatures and spending some time with them and uh, falling in love with them. Um, I, I came back from that with a really clear sense of how I wanted to represent the character of Blitzen on the screen. Um, and I knew that I wanted him to be on the larger side. Uh, I wanted him to be this sort of uh, proud old warrior that had taken some scrapes along the way. Uh, and uh, and so when it came time to think about how we would actually get Nicholas to ride on Blitzen, um, we did a casting for horses to try to find a small horse that had proportions that were lean enough to properly match up with a reindeer, which is not easy because you a lot of horses are quite round uh, their barrel is quite mm -hmm. large rounded so it means legs sort of stick out dramatically to the side and we had to find a beautifully shaped proportional but narrow framed horse and um and we did we found this gorgeous white mare named cassandra who was a, a great actor she had good temperament and actually some of the close-ups where nicholas is interacting with blitzen um are totally inspired by found moments of basically improvised uh, animal performance between Henry playing Nicholas and Cassandra's reaction to him. Mm -hmm. um, but there were also moments with full puppeteering. So we had two great uh, uh, professional puppeteers, uh, Anna and Thomas in, in the Czech Republic, who had a full-sized uh, reindeer puppet that they operated on set. Uh, we also had a sort of uh, a chariot that was built with a perfect uh, plastic representation of Blitzen's torso. Uh, and that was held aloft by four brawny stunt guys. And they would sort of run along and lift uh, lift and lower the uh, the chariot um, to approximate the galloping of a reindeer. And we did that. So there are some of the shots now that you've seen the film when Nicholas is, before he discovers um, or is discovered by Toby Jones's character, Father Topo, he's making his way towards where he hopes to find Elfhelm. And he ends up finding an object in the snow that uh, that guts him, and and as he sees that object, he sort of urges Blitzen on uh, through the snow, coming down the slopes of the mountain uh, into this frozen valley, and uh, that was shot totally practically with uh, with Henry sitting on this uh, sort of chariot with four stunt dudes just running through chest deep <laughs> snow trying to it was really hard to shoot but um but the, the effect's really good and he's i mean he's very convincing uh, uh, riding a a, a man-powered chariot i would never have thought that but uh, i think i called him harry early but of course it's henry oh, no, lawful yeah, yeah. yeah um so this is his, this is only his second screen credit i mean this is an interesting character you mentioned roald dahl earlier um 
he he has a real Charlie Bucket vibe. He lives like you know with very little, very dirt poor, uh, in a in a shack, and you know you can draw parallels there. How did you go about finding uh, Henry as as your lead? Because he's the audience's eyes and ears into this fantastical adventure. Well, it was important that he was able to cut through all of the fantasy. I mean, I, I knew that there was going to be a lot of crazy stuff in this movie and, 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 and that we would try to conjure something approximating our wonder. I'm, you know, I'm afraid of using the word magic, but we would be trying to create some of that feeling on screen. And, and I, I knew that for myself and for the audience, the best way to survive that would be to find somebody who was actually really grounded so play against all of those concepts. Try to find somebody who wouldn't be overplaying the, 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 the sort of brightness or the magic of the thing and could give it a soul. Um, and with uh, casting a young actor, you just never know. You, you, you cast a wide net and you see what you dredge up in it. And it just so happened that in the very first pull of this net, because of the hard work of Susie Figgis, the casting director of A Boy Called Christmas, I saw Henry. He was the first round of tapes that was submitted to me. And I remember watching it the first time and turning to Susie and just saying like, I think we just saw Nicholas, but it can't be, right? Like there's no way we could just have found him in the first round. And, uh, and so, we kind of put that tape off to the side and went through the motions for a couple more weeks of just seeing people. And I just kept putting them back up against Henry. And it was just no comparison because Henry wasn't play acting. He was giving me something totally honest. And actually that honesty and openness that he was able to show me in front of the camera was exactly the thing that I had been looking for to offset the, um, the fairy tale trappings of this story. He is really good. Um, and, you know, like I said, riding that reindeer, I think I told you actually last time we spoke, when I watched the trailer, the, the moment that Blitzen takes flight uh, made me well up just watching the trailer. And sure enough, uh, that sequence, that whole sequence that you shot, um, it made me, it made me cry. Uh, not, and I'm not going to give away any spoilers, not for the reason that I thought it was going to in the trailer for an entirely different reason. Um, when you shoot a sequence like that and you finish putting it together, you, you know, you've sat in the edit, the CGI has been done. It's all there. Do you think to yourself that is going to really hit with an audience? I know as close as I can know that that is going to get an emotional reaction. Here's something I've learned. It's actually a really good question. I've learned this now having done a few films with visual effects in them. Um, if it's going to work when it's done, it always works the exact same way in the rawest, purest version of it. So in the green screen version of it, it'll always conjure the same emotional reaction. And, and then that reaction goes away as you start to add in VFX. And your goal as a filmmaker is to keep working over the world building and the sort of cohesion of the light and effects and animation so that you end up back at that emotional response that you had when there was nothing on the screen except for performance. 
And actually that is the hardest part of visual effects. And it's the most important part of it, especially for a sequence like the one you're describing. I had to keep working that sequence over both in terms of cuts and score and visual effect just to get back to what I had felt on the set when uh, Mikkel and Henry were mm. filming that sequence. Oh, Mikkel. Oh, he's so good. I just watched him in an ITV drama where he plays an abusive husband and you're like, man, he's so good at that. And then you watch him in this and you're like, man, he's so lovely and wholesome. He's a great guy. He's so warm. Um, you know, I think a part of him was really excited to finally not murder somebody <laughs> in a, in a film. Um, and, uh, and he is, just one of the most generous like giving warm guys he's he's a he's a he's a beautiful soul i love him yeah he's he's great he's exactly what you want that character uh, to be and now i know you've got the dogs to walk so i'll try and keep my last set of questions fairly quickly Thank because you. dogs are very important uh, as we've established although and you put some i don't think they were cgi the dogs that you put in the movie either the hunter's dogs um, they're not huskies though they look they're like not huskies. They're, no, no, they're 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 not CG at all. They're all real. Um, what are they? Those, all Lurches? the dogs are real. Those are they're Borzois. They're Russian wolfhounds. Oh and I had a I had a very particular image in my head. Um, I had seen some uh, in in doing research. I did some uh, uh, visual research and found these really incredible uh, images of Russian wolfhounds racing through the snow. Um, they were considered these sort of very regal dogs. They're huge and beautiful. And um, so I, I, I was lucky because we were shooting in the Czech Republic and there happened to be a bunch of Borzoi fan clubs there. So we pulled together a bunch of them. I had, I think, six uh, at any one time on, maybe we might have eight actually on set at one point. And uh, turns out they're beautiful, sweet dogs that can't pull more than like an acorn, you know? And so we, we had to train them to be uh, uh, lashed up together and then train them to not be afraid of this sledge that was gonna be pulled behind them. And all of that was done practically. Um, and so they weren't doing the heavy lifting. All of that was being mechanized, but they uh, were brilliant performers. And yeah, all all practical, all shot on uh, set. That doesn't surprise me. I imagine someone was like, Gil, you know, we can CGI these dogs. And you were like, no, they're dogs, so they'll be real. I'll be bringing them uh, <laughs> I wish uh, I, I wish you could have been there to see all of the embarrassing moments of me grinding the shoe to a halt because I was rolling on the ground, surrounded by a pack of Borzois. Um, and people were like, is this actually required for the scene? Why are there all... <laughs> Why are there more goats in this scene than people? That was a question that was asked more than once on this set. And <laughs> um, last time we spoke, um, and I, it's interesting because you've just made uh, what is a really warm, beautiful uh, movie, uh, you know, with a lot of heart. It's a feel-good movie. Um, but last time we spoke, you were writing uh, what you described as the nastiest thing you'd ever written because that's what you wanted to work on uh, next or in the near future, a, a horror movie. Um that you were talking about are you still planning on doing that is that is that what you're working on next or has has that had to be put to one side no that's been put to one side um i have uh i have written a whole script since the last time we we've spoken uh, jason and i collaborated on another screenplay um a, a non-ghostbusters screenplay that we're not talking about yet um and uh 
And I've been preoccupied with putting both of these films out into the world uh, beyond that. Um, I've got a lot of ideas, though. So hopefully this next year can be very, very fruitful. Well, Gil, I want you to come back and talk to me about every single idea that you have and dogs and film in general. It's always a pleasure speaking to you. Um, Are you Christmasing in London? Yeah, yeah, I think we're going to we're going to stay here. And Alex, as you well know, because you are putting the rest of the film journalism market out of business, there won't be a choice for me come <laughs> a year or two. There will be only one destination for promoting a piece of film entertainment. That's the goal. Um, a contract is in the mail. Um, I didn't want to have to do it legally, but I just would rather you spoke to no one else. So there we go. Um, <laughs> Lovely to chat to you, Gil. Have a great Christmas. I hope to see you on a, on a snow-covered Hampstead Heath with the dogs at some point. From your lips, Alex, it would be an honor. Um, take care. <laughs> Have a wonderful week and happy holidays. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye, Gil. Bye. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to Quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. AdWanted UK is the provider of single-source media data for agencies, media owners, brands and academic institutions. And thanks to our rebranded news offering called The Media Leader, we can also lead the way in championing excellence and inclusion in the media industry. To find out more, simply visit the-media-leader.com to subscribe to our daily bulletins. The Media Leader from AdWanted UK. Hello, Alex Zane here. Thank you for choosing to listen to Just The Facts. And while you can still enjoy these episodes forever, you might want to check out our brand new show, A Trip To The Movies, where each week a different famous film fan curates their perfect night out at the cinema, picking what snacks they'd eat, where they'd sit, who they'd go with, and of course, what movies they'd screen. If you love cinema as much as we do, search A Trip to the Movies with Alex Zane or head to our socials at Trip to Movies Pod. That's at Trip to Movies Pod to find out more.